Cyberwork and InfoSec would like to introduce you to our new Cybersecurity Beginner Immersive Boot Camps. They're designed to help you gain and enhance your expertise in the cybersecurity field. Join our live interactive virtual classes led by InfoSec's highly skilled instructors who will guide you through the material and provide real-time support. And as part of InfoSec's Immersive's training, each student will have access to career coaching aimed at helping them start or switch to the cybersecurity field. You heard that right. We aren't here to just teach you the concept of what a security professional does. We want to prepare you to enter the job market with a competitive edge in six months' time. Now, I've told you about InfoSec certification boot camps, and if you're trying to hit your next career target and need a certification to do it, that's still your best bet. But if you're an entry-level cybersecurity professional or want to be, or you're switching your career and want to experience a career transformation, InfoSec's immersive boot camps are designed to make you job ready in six months. To learn more, go to infosecinstitute.com slash cyberwork, all one word, C-Y-B-E-R-W-R-K, and learn more about this exciting new way to immerse yourself in learning with InfoSec. And now, let's begin the show. Today on Cyberwork, Christopher Tarantino of Epicenter Innovation tells me all about emergency response and the myriad techniques and skill sets that the term implies. Is there a physical security component? Yes. Is there a cybersecurity component? Big time. Is there an educational element? Absolutely. Find out how disaster planning, preparation, remediation, and post-event rebuilding and improvement are all opportunities to strengthen your security posture today on CyberWork. Welcome to this week's episode of the CyberWork with InfoSec podcast. Each week, we talk with a different industry thought leader about the latest cybersecurity trends, how those trends affect the work of InfoSec professionals while offering tips for breaking in or moving up the ladder in the cybersecurity industry. Christopher Tarantino is an award-winning entrepreneur, investor, and international speaker on resilient innovation. He's worked with thousands of high-performing leaders from startups, enterprise, and government organizations like Google, FEMA, Cisco, and other recognizable brands across the globe. Uh, with past roles at every level of government, as well as growing businesses uh, beyond seven figures, he is sought after by leaders from both the public and private sectors to transform how they leverage team resilience to drive innovation. He previously worked in the information security space as a technical risk communication specialist, and his insights have been featured in Inc. Magazine, CBS, NBC, as well as a variety of industry publications. As the CEO and founder of Epicenter Innovation, awarded number 762 in the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing private companies, Chris leads a team focused on human-centered, resilience-focused innovation before, during, and after disaster incidents. So today we're going to be talking about disaster preparedness, emergency response, uh, and hopefully tying that within the cybersecurity space, although I know that there's a, a lot more components to it than that. So uh, Chris, thanks for joining me today and welcome to CyberWork. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and excited to talk a little bit about the connections between emergency management and, and cybersecurity for sure. Yeah, these are these are all sort of re recurring uh, topics that come that that bounce from guest to guest. My previous guest, we were talking about uh, industrial control systems and the security uh, uh, issues that can result if someone hacks into uh, electrical grid or water supply or other such things. And I'm sure that's all stuff that sure. you uh, uh, work with as well. So I want to start by getting a handle around our terms here. So we mostly talk about cybersecurity on this podcast, and I've had plenty of guests on the show talk about disaster and emergency preparedness, including Michael Figueroa, 
who spoke on tabletop exercises that simulated cyber attacks and other disasters that might lead to network or online shutdowns. So when you speak about emergency response with regard to your own company, what is the scope? What is the what are the services and scenarios that you work with? Great question. Um, so most of the time when when our team gets called in, it, it could be for a variety of different things. Uh, we use what we call an all hazards, all threats approach, which okay. means that no matter if it's a natural disaster or a terrorist attack or something happening in, in the cybersecurity realm of things, we use the, the same or at least a very similar set of tools and frameworks and, and things like that in order to get things done. Um, my, my background actually is uh, in emergency response, but then, you know, obviously that translates pretty naturally into emergency management. Um, but the reason why uh, Epicenter Innovation, my organization, focuses on the innovation and technology side of things is because actually that all started when I was working in the technology space uh, and, and more specifically working in InfoSec for a university uh, some, some years ago. Okay, so to that end, uh, we just mentioned the term is resilience and resilience innovation. I and mean, can you define uh, those terms for me in an emergency response context? What are you doing to bring up the level of preparedness using these sort of tools and frameworks and concepts? Yeah, I love that you're cluing into the vocabulary as well. As mm -hmm. a as a fellow word nerd, I think it's really important <laughs> to to know uh, kind of what we're talking about, and, mm -hmm. and 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 at least in the framework of a of an individual conversation, right? Like we do a lot of uh, a lot of training and a lot of coaching and consulting and things like that, and we get in a room and everyone thinks that we're using the same words that mean the same things so that you bring a meeting and you think that everybody else has that meaning oh, yeah. uh, associated with that word. And I've, it just I've doesn't been, happen in our industries, right? I've been lingoed out of the room so many times by, by meetings <laughs> where it's all, it's just, and we won't even get started on acronyms, get acronym to death. Yeah, exactly. And, and you're like, and you don't want to be the person that's raising your hand, like, what is a PIM, you know, or whatever. So, true. um, okay. So, yeah, so, let's, so let's talk about, uh, what, yeah. what you mean by, by these things. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so when we talk about resilience, I think a lot of people think that that means bouncing back after a disaster, and that's not mm. uh, an incorrect definition. But for for us, we think of it as as kind of an imperfect or an incomplete definition. And when I think of resilience, I, I think of uh, whole system, whole community, total you know stakeholder engagement uh, on not just bouncing back, but on making. Uh, an effort to seize every opportunity presented by whatever incident that it is that we're talking about. Uh, so not just bouncing back, but bouncing forward, uh, as you may have heard in, in some other spaces. Uh, so when we talk about resilience, we talk about that. And the phrase resilience innovator is this persona that that we've designed over the last couple of years as we as we went through the country, went around, uh, you know, mostly North America doing our work with coaching and training and, you know, the tabletop exercises and things like that. I, I'm a huge exercise nerd as a master exercise practitioner for GHS. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we go around uh, all these places. And there's people that are interested in building resilience and enhancing their level of resilience inside the organization or within their community, but they don't want to use the same tools that have always been tried. They want to kind of color outside the lines a little bit, mm -hmm. use different tool sets and borrow from other industries that might not necessarily be directly associated with resilience building or safety. Um, so we work with a lot of life safety uh, mm -hmm. uh, practitioners and professionals. But we also talk about kind of, like I mentioned, the connection between those people and the consequences that might arise from things like cybersecurity, information security lapses, and all the human-based systems. And so what we call it, that whole kind of holistic approach that I'm talking about here, we call it human-centered, resilience-focused innovation because it starts with people first. And, and you know this just as well as anybody else from the InfoSec world watching or listening mm -hmm. to this, is that 
human beings are the biggest threat vector that we have. And, and it's not from a malicious standpoint, it's it's from everything else that goes into these systems that we're talking about. And so we focus on that, that people side of things. Yeah. Now, um, it's it, it, speaking about the concept of not bouncing back, but bouncing forward and, and so forth. So it sounds to me like that it, it's, that you've the, the the part that you've carved out for yourself is that you know it's not just enough to bring the power you know the the electrical back up it's like how do we make sure that this same problem doesn't happen again and then you sort of implement strategies and and sort of so so there's there's this like every sort of setback is a is, is sort of like a, a construction or a learning experience or a chance to move forward is that, is that Am I getting that right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think that's where, you know, the term innovation has gotten kind of diluted in our world mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. where innovation seems to kind of coincide with shiny object syndrome to a certain extent, especially in the yeah. tech realm. Hot new thing, um, yeah. And I think, yeah. And, and in this realm, I think innovation can be pretty boring and, and sometimes unexciting, mm-hmm. but can be very, very important. Um, yes. And so when, when we talk about resilience innovators, it's it's this persona that transcends industry, it transcends uh, public or private sector, and it's an, it's an adopted persona. No one has the job title of resilience innovator. Um, but you know, when when we look around, you could be a cybersecurity professional, and if your job is to uh, you know enhance the the resiliency or the connectivity of your network and make sure that your um, you know that your continuity of operations are are all well maintained, then that's you're, you're a resilience innovator, whether you, you know that or not. Yeah. Now, uh, without you know going into specific details, is there any chance you could take maybe like uh, an archetypal past client and sort of like walk through like an incident that happened and then some of the specific uh, innovation points that you you implemented to sort of improve things. Yeah. 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 Uh, so we do a lot of work in the in the higher education space. Like I mentioned, I, I have my personally have a lot of experience there. Uh, but on our team, we have a lot of people that come from the emergency management realm, the IT uh, and like systems engineering realm of things in, in universities with a specific focus on what we call safety technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we work with with one university in, in upstate New York. Um and when we started working with them, they had no emergency manager. They had no real. They had some safety plans that I think were uh, maybe control F from a from a past plan somewhere else. And <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, uh, you know they found they found and replaced a different agency's name and replaced it with their own. And mm-hmm. and, and I don't say that to be uh, derogatory or to to minimize their their effort. I think it's just yeah. they didn't have the expertise. They didn't have the knowledge of of what they didn't know that they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they did their best. And so when we got called in initially. We, we took that ground floor, that all hazards, all threats approach. And mm-hmm. we said, all right, let's tune up your plans, your policies, your procedures, the basic stuff. And let's take a step back and, and do what we call a Thyra, a threat and hazard identification risk assessment, which looks at things like natural disasters, uh, past frequency, historical data, things like that. But it also looks at things that happen on the actual campus. We go back and we look at um, any sort of safety or security related incidents in the past few years. We go back and we look at their relationship with their IT department and how well their campus security and campus safety folks and their emergency management folks are working with IT and, and, and building relationships that way. Then we went through a whole training and exercise program, so tabletop exercises, seminars, full scales, all those types of things, building up capability that could be holistically applied. And so we included um, various team members that were already on the emergency management team for the university, but then also others from IT, from their library, for example. They had a, a pretty extensive library network, which no 
no one thought to include in a lot of emergency planning, but they had priceless documents and yeah. uh, secure servers that they needed to maintain. And they were largely outside of the conversation. So the first step for, for us is, is to engage the, the appropriate parties and make sure that we're exploring the necessary aspects of, of security and safety and resilience at, at, a, at a foundational level. Take it a step further. So we built that foundation first. Take it a step further. And then we said, you know, one of the biggest things that you, they have going on at their university was their cybersecurity program. Okay. They had um, state and DOD contracts. They had, um, you know, secure servers. They had a whole whole myriad of different things that they had to, you know, maintain access to. Mm-hmm. They had contractors that needed to be able to play in the sandbox uh, when necessary. They had a lot, of, a lot of different things going on. And so we conducted uh, what we call a safety technology assessment to figure out uh, what their opportunities were around the campus, both from a physical security standpoint, from a cybersecurity standpoint, access control, surveillance, mass notification, all of the different systems that are in play, and not just you know on the digital side or looking at software, but looking at how that shows up in the physical space as well, and brought their IT and their emergency management people together to have a conversation. So we conducted the assessment, and then we built a crosswalk between the cybersecurity teams that would operate in the event of an IT disaster incident, um, you know, the ITDR or, or business continuity realm or academic continuity in, in terms of what this client was really interested in. And we brought it together with the emergency management folks, which are focused on life safety and property preservation. We showed them that they have a very similar mission and that they can use the same or very similar structures to operate. And if then, you know, they're trained that way, they can work much more effectively if they ever need to play in the sandbox together. Got it. Um, now, so some of the recent disasters or close calls that we, we follow pretty closely on this show include, of course, the Colonial Pipeline hack, but also the, the Oldsmar water plant hack and the some of the ransomware attacks that have taken hospital power grids during critical surgeries. Uh, do you also, I know you work in higher ed, do you work any around any disasters like these? And do you have you do you do sort of exercises or tabletops around these things that help might mitigate these types of disasters? For sure. Yeah. Um, so we, we work primarily, I'd say, our biggest markets uh, with our team at, at Epicenter Innovation. We work with healthcare, higher education, uh, and, and we call it government and, co- and quasi-government organizations. So, okay. you know, anybody that operates like a government, like higher ed and healthcare, they very much have their own little kind of fiefdom that they operate yeah. within. They have yeah. lots of systems. They have lots of bureaucracy sometimes that they have to work through. But the cool thing about those types of groups is that they also have a, a really huge opportunity to make big change, um, you know, in, in this realm of resilience building and, and resilience culture uh, enhancement. And because they have their own little environment, they have these little these little microcosms of the world, they can manipulate their environment, educate their stakeholders and, and make major changes much more rapidly, much more effectively than than if you're looking at your average municipality or, or municipal government, for example. Um, so, yeah, we, we do a lot of that work and, and we try to focus on uh, that culture change, the culture building aspect of things as a foundational element, something that transcends our work, uh, whether we're working before, during or after these types of incidents. Um, but cybersecurity and like the the uh, water plan and SCADA system attacks that you're talking about, like they're mm-hmm. they're very much. Um, I wouldn't say they're they're in vogue in our world, but we have to bring them up to let people know, and especially to let leadership know the the threat environment that they're participating in, whether they are aware of it or not. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that kind of 
connectivity and the translation between these two worlds is where we fit most often. And we took a hard look at, at where we operate and who we talk to and who we train. And what we found is most successfully, we're bringing audience A that knows something usually highly technical or very specific. It could be weather, it could be IT in this case that we're talking about. And we bring it together with the folks that are going to have to fix the or a set of problems uh, yeah. if, if there are lives at risk. And we let them know that there's something to be learned on either side here. So the IT folks can learn from emergency managers, and the emergency managers can learn from IT folks too. And so by putting them together and, and bringing them through a training and exercise plan, especially one that uh, you know, transcends and, and, and works through multiple years, um, we can build that connectivity and make sure that everyone's on the same page. Yeah. Now, yeah, it sounds based on what I, you know, my initial research, it, it sounds like uh, there's a lot more sort of education involved on on your side of things than I realized. It's not just mitigation, but it's and and long term at that. So, can you speak to that? You said you you you're talking about long like education that lasts over several years. Is, did I hear that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so most of our clients we work with uh, for multiple years at a time. Um, okay. You know, and and that's more so on the pre-disaster side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a disaster deployment team that we call Epicenter Dis- uh, Deployment Support Unit, okay. um, and that team comes in after major disasters, and and okay. we work through different things uh, with that. And that can be, you know, it's usually weeks and months, um, for example. But pre-disaster is the stage that most of us are in most of the time, and we spend yeah. most of our time. We spend ninety percent of our time planning for the 10 percent, um, which is understandable. And, and in my past life as a, as a firefighter and EMT and all those types of things, working for FEMA, it makes sense, right? You need to be ready for those worst case scenarios. Yep. However, you know, when when we look at the most likely scenario and, and talking through what are our most prevalent threats are, what our most frequent natural hazards that, that might impact our systems could be, um, that tends to speak a little bit louder to uh, to leadership. And so we talk a lot about change management. We talk a lot about um, decision making and habit building and those types of things mm-hmm. and how a an organization lives and breathes to create or to detract from resilience at their core. And so what we try to do is by bringing these people together through the education, through engagement, through training and exercise, those types of things, um, is we try to just open the conversation to let them know yeah, you know, it might be sexy to talk about active shooter incidents right now. It seems like mm-hmm. it's been that way for for a lot of years. You know, you might actually have a much bigger risk uh, to have some sort of cybersecurity incident. And usually it just takes having the right conversation and framing it that way um, mm-hmm. for, for big things to happen. Um, one of our most successful exercises with the, the university that I mentioned earlier was actually a recovery exercise. And what we what we uh, and not not sexy at all. Right. People yeah. don't want to talk about recovery. They, they want to talk about response because that's when the lights go off and you, yes. know, you get to play the hero. Right. And, and understandable. I, I get mm-hmm. that. I get that approach. But recovery is really, really important. It'll make or break whether or not you're around for the next 10 years or, yeah. or around for the next next disaster. Right. Yeah. So we did this recovery exercise where um, the the instance, the, the incident in question was actually a, a water main break. But the issue was not the water. The issue was uh, the placement of this university's um, server room, which was in a basement mm-hmm. located right next to 
a water main. Mm -hmm. And this is a very real hazard and and to something that, uh, you know, some of their leadership was familiar with, but most of them were not familiar with. They didn't know that they were at risk for this. And so we we started playing this scenario and they thought it was a flooding exercise and that they would have to figure out how to, you know, uh, you know, navigate the the water main break and those types of things or service interruption for for drinking water and meal service and, and the stuff that comes very obvious to that population. They're like, okay, they're immediately going in this direction, which is kind of how we designed the exercise. And then we told them that they couldn't uh, bill uh, because the server that uh, was in question, or there's a few, but the, one of the main servers that was in question, uh, that was impacted by the these fictitious floodwaters from the water main, mm-hmm. uh, was actually their connection to their banking platform and to their um, uh, to their financial services. And we placed the exercise right around the same time where they were expecting to take all of their payments for the next semester's billing. And if you know anything about universities, money really speaks to them, especially especially now. Um, And that really got the eyes open of their their president and of their cabinet members that really weren't sure exactly why we were talking about these things before. And now they were like, oh, wow, now I really understand why we should spend you know, however many tens of thousands of dollars to move these services elsewhere or put them in the cloud and those types of things. Mm-hmm. And why, you know, there's a cause and effect relationship here that they need to be talking about. Yeah, I don't think anyone really likes to admit it, but I think a lot of what we think of in terms of how a disaster and the recovery happens, we get from movies. And I think there's that sense of like, the lights are out, the good guy saves the day, the lights go back on, everyone goes, oh, and then everything just sort of resumes as normal. But yeah, I mean, a, a disaster isn't just making the disaster stop the disaster can keep cascading and cascading and you know and i think that's a big part of the sort of difficulty that you get with 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 buy-in on on these types of things is is for sure you know you said that we're we're always thinking about that you know the spending 90 percent of time thinking about the 10 percent, but unfortunately i think some people aren't even thinking about that 10 percent that often or are imagining that it you know it happened one percent of the time or what have yeah. you so so to that end in, in general cybersecurity or otherwise what are the most troubling blind spots that you see in terms of uh, implementation of essential security me- measures in case of disasters. Hmm. I, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, there's there's a book out there called The Unthinkable by Amanda Ripley. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you're not familiar with it, or if your if your listeners aren't, uh, I highly highly recommend it. Hmm. Um, I actually think I might spy it behind you. It looks very similar to one of the books okay. over your right shoulder. It's not, uh, but uh, but I, it will not, be soon. Yeah. It looks yeah, similar. Yeah. Okay. You, you definitely <laughs> definitely highly recommend this book. It's yeah. it's uh, a yeah. it's a, a kind of um, exploration of why certain people survive disasters and why other people do not, but it's mm-hmm. much less about survival and much more about the human brain. And one of the things that that uh, Amanda Ripley talks about and has been expanded in, in other research is this idea of, of optimism bias. And it, optimism bias is this human condition that people believe that everything's going to be okay. Um, and, and even though you and I are both smart people, we both uh, have this predisposition to believe that, you know, in, in terms of a car accident, right, we know the statistical likelihood that we're both likely uh, to get into a car accident, equally likely to get into a car accident. But somehow in our brains, I feel like it's much more likely to happen to you and you feel like it's much more likely to happen to me. And there's nothing that we can do about that fact, even if we know that it's irrational. Um, that's optimism bias. And so when we when we think about making change to culture or communicating the value of cybersecurity, communicating the value of preparedness, just in general, regardless of 
of what the hazard or threat might be. That's our biggest weakness. That's what we're really fighting against. We're not really fighting the hazard or the threat or the bad actor or or whatever. And, you know, we could talk about zero trust and we could talk about InfoSec. We could talk about password managers and, and all the things that, that I'm sure you guys talk about uh, and I've seen in your past episodes that you talk about on, on this show. Yeah. But if we don't address the human uh, propensity to not believe that it could happen to them, it doesn't matter what systems we put in place. It really doesn't. And yeah. it doesn't matter how prepared the entity may be or how uh, how much of an investment the organization makes in their level of preparedness or resilience or, or whatever word you want to use to call it. Um, it doesn't matter at all because the people aren't going to be ready and they're not going to believe that they could be a victim. And then what what uh, is explored in that book, the reason why I bring up the unthinkable is, um, is we have this denial that when we are in the scenario, especially if we're personally impacted or we feel very close to the scenario that's unfolding. Um, this is probably more true in a physical sense, but I'm sure it, it also mirrors in a, in a cyber sense as well. We have this, this period of denial that slows us down and impedes our progress and impedes our ability to, to manage the incident as, as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And as we know, the faster you respond, the more efficiently you respond, the more muscle memory you employ during that response, the better off you're going to be and the shorter you're going to have to, to recover and get back to that normal or uh, like we talked about bounce forward into that new normal. Yeah. Now, to, to that end, I mean, obviously, a big focus of our show is 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 the work of cybersecurity, hence cyber work, the title. Uh, and um, what I'm hearing, and and you can you know expand or correct me if I'm wrong, but it it seems like you know as we sort of delineate all these possible jobs you can do within a cybersecurity space, especially if you're not a person who's spectacularly tech forward and, and know everything there is to know about, you know, TCP IP or configuring firewalls or pen testing or whatever, that there's, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of uh, the soft skill of persuasion and the soft skill of, of, tra you know, translating like the actual real, you know, and obviously we, we talk about, you know, risk managers and, and risk analysts and things like that. And it seems like that sort of falls in into this space as well, but can you talk about, some of the, the the skills and some of the ways that people who might have, you know, are well aware of the <laughs> of the crises that are going on right now and yeah. want to do something about it. Like, what what should they be sort of uh, learning in, in, in an attempt to sort of like enter this space and 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 lend a hand? Sure. I, I think, you know, the biggest thing that I've learned over the last uh, some years, I've been working in emergency response now for about uh, 17 years and, and building resilience in various communities and organizations and things like that, is that you can't build resilience uh, by by focusing on a single system. You have to look at the holistic uh, system and all of its parts and all of the people that are engaged in it in order to really have lasting change. That takes a long time and it takes a lot of effort and it takes thinking creatively in order to understand what the shared uh, and common ground might be to break through certain walls that maybe you know or don't know are there mm -hmm. uh, that are impeding progress. Um, there's a lot of soft skill that goes into all of what we're talking about. You know, mm -hmm. you could be the smartest person in the room, but if you can't communicate your idea and if you can't make the other person trust you, believe you, and then most importantly, take action on what you're saying, um, you could have the best solution, but it won't get adopted or at least it won't get adopted completely. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I saw that a lot, you know, my uh, at my previous role where I mentioned I was a technical risk communication specialist, I was the first person of that that title in the office. And my background before that time was actually in marketing. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I wanted to start bridging the gap between marketing, communications, PR, those types of fields, uh, which is where my more traditional experience came from. And the passion that I had, which was in the emergency response space and and specifically within technology. So I, I went to this office and I said, you know, look, you have all these great programs. You're 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 pen testing, you're uh, managing your your servers, your mm-hmm. there's there's so much that goes into, you know, all, all the people that are listening to this, you guys know there's so much that goes into your work. Um, the problem is you can do all of it and you can do it all a hundred percent well, but all it takes is the bad actor being right one time mm-hmm. and all of it was for nothing or for one well-intentioned person to share a password or leave it on a, a sticky note or, you know, get spearfished or whatever the, the vector yeah. might be. Um, and, and all of it falls away. You can do everything right. Uh, all of the times prior to that, but all it takes is the one slip up and, and it'll go away. And you can't do it all by yourself. The, the fact is that most IT departments and most InfoSec or cybersecurity units are a small, small, small fraction of the overall workforce that we're mm-hmm. trying to protect. And so there's many more of them than there are of us. Um, so I went to this office and I said, you need to get more creative with uh, how you're approaching those people because they need to be on your team. You can't look at them as being uh, this otherworldly group or this stakeholder, this obscure stakeholder that you have to communicate to, but you have to bring them onto your team. You have to inform them and let them know what's going on. You have to humanize your brand and you have to then let them run with it and let them do what they do. Because it, And you have to believe right, that, that an educated consumer is a motivated one mm-hmm. and you have to believe that if you take that same logic that we steal from the business world, uh, that you can then use it to your advantage when you're trying to protect your networks or protect your people or protect your assets. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that showed up in a few different ways. We did a lot of like social media campaigning. Um, I designed um, actually a playing card deck with tips on every single uh, card face, which was super mm-hmm. fun. Yeah. Um, did a lot of events and speaking engagements and things like that. And just coordinated this communications campaign the same way that you would as if preparedness was a product. Um, and you have to sell the idea of being prepared or of building resilience or securing your, your laptop, whatever it may be. You mm-hmm. have to sell that to the individual. Um, and, and using things like marketing and sales can help you do that. So there's this, this framework that I use a lot called the hierarchy of effects. And it basically communicates how people adopt things over time. And they go from being aware or unaware of a brand or a service or a product to then being aware of it. And then maybe they like or that they dislike it. But then eventually, you know, you go through this whole framework that may take hours, minutes, days, weeks, years, whatever. And eventually there's a decision that they have to make. They're either going to adopt what you're talking about and, and take action or they're not. And what we've noticed is that you can have marketing messages and sales messages shoved down your throat dozens of times, but until you reach the right message and until you've had it repeated by someone that you care about and trust, you're probably not going to take that action. So you take that and you apply the same knowledge, the same mindset uh, to preparedness, to resilience, to security. And now you have many more people on your team. Yeah. Now, uh, speaking of more people, um, can we talk a little bit, I, uh, you know, when, when I think about tabletopping and again, what, what I know about uh, this is, is, you know, you could fit in the shot class, but, uh, uh, you know, I've, I, based on past guests and so forth that there's, uh, you know, some aspect of this that is, um, kind of in, you know, intra community or intra, in, intra business, you know, different, different, you know, like if a chemical attack hits a city, like, 
you need to have fast communications, not just with the electrical grid and the water supply and the IT. And the, do you do you have anything, uh, you know, in terms of being that kind of conduit? So because it's one thing to say, like, you know, I've got my my company didn't understand, you know, the problem and now we've got it secured. But now how do you sort of go from that into uh, reaching out into all of the other industries, maybe even business rivals that work with you and say, like, we're all in this together and we need to sort of get all on the same page at the same time? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think what's cool about uh, working in the space that we do is that when you when you start approaching it from the lens of, of building a holistic sense of resilience mm-hmm. or a community that's marked by that that level of resilience, you you start looking at who's around you and you realize that we are really all on the same team. We really are all trying to accomplish the same things. And mm-hmm. while you know we may be competing in the public sphere, I think healthcare is a great example of this, right? While we may be rival hospitals yes. uh, or healthcare systems. I don't want you to go down, you know, just as much as you don't want me to go down. Mm-hmm. And and we've seen that with ransomware and a whole bunch of other things where if you're getting attacked, it's only a matter of time before it's my turn. Uh, or if they're using this method or this 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 uh, you know system to to attack or to uh, partition files off and things like that, they might use the exact same strategies against us or our neighbors or our government counterpart government counterparts. And so we have to share that information. I think that's happening a lot more now. Um, and I think I'm seeing that a lot more in, in the competitive landscape also, where it was still a little bit shy about that stuff, where we've created those inroads with these organizations to say, yeah, we might be competitors, but at least in this sphere, we don't want anyone to get hurt and we don't want anyone, uh, you know, anyone to have their, have their lunch money stolen. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think exercises are a great way to do that. Um, other things like networking and conferences, of course, right? Just kind of mm-hmm. extending the olive branch. There's a saying in the in the emergency management realm where you don't want to be exchanging business cards at the incident command post. And uh, you know yeah. what that means is basically you don't you don't want to be learning someone's first name, you know, while they're bleary eyed at three o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. after all the alarms have gone off. Um, it's just <laughs> right. not a, not a fun time for mm-hmm. for that to happen, and it's usually not the most effective way either. So um, when when we look at exercises, we look at the different frameworks and styles. Um, so I so I teach, like I mentioned, the Master Exercise Practitioner Program for FEMA and for DHS, mm-hmm. and um, the the MEP credential basically is the top credential for designing and delivering exercises. There's two main styles of exercises that we talk about. There's discussion based, and then there's operations based, and a lot of times in the leadership realm, they gravitate a lot toward operations space because they're much more interesting. You know, it, it makes the loud bang and you get to see the lights go off and you get the cops right. on your on your sure. campus. And it just looks a lot more interesting. There's a lot more opportunity for press. Um, the problem with operations based exercises, though, and, and their, their interest, the high level of interest that a lot of leadership teams have in them is that you don't have learning across the system happening at the same time. And the opportunity with the discussion-based exercise or like even joint learning through seminar and through uh, engaging with each other through games and, and uh, you know, functional type things uh, like tabletops, uh, tabletop exercises 
is you actually all get to learn at the same time and experience a disaster through the lens of the other person. When when everyone's you know running around like a chicken with their head cut off after the bad thing has happened, it's much harder to do that. And and it you know there, we have systems in place for that to to be better after the fact. You'll do hot washes or after action reports and things like that to be like, okay, how can we improve this next time? But we know based on again going back to that human psychology side of things that once we're out of the environment, once the hazard or threat goes away and this response period is over, our memory of exactly how those events transpired, what we did, what plans we used or didn't use yeah. pretty much goes out the window. We have no recollection, no accurate recollection of, of what occurred. So unless you're logging really effectively in some documentation, documentation. Yeah, exactly. Right. So mm-hmm. if you have that, then, then you at least have a crutch to lean on. But even still, we know you can have the best systems for documentation. But all it takes is someone getting in the heat of it for a few minutes or, or let alone a few hours. Mm-hmm. And now they have to reconstruct what they did over the last yeah. some minutes or hours. And now you don't have a, not have a better log. That's if it, that's, if it's a, a human based logging system, of course. And, and right. of course, if you can automate some of your documentation through your systems, that's obviously better, but then you're still, piecing things together. And so my, my point is when you go through a tabletop exercise and you go through joint training, especially like cross training between different groups, like the incident management team meeting with the cybersecurity team and talking about the order of operations and then, okay, yeah, you're thinking about this. I understand that I'm thinking about this other thing entirely, which may not happen right now, but if it does happen, it's going to be, you know, a, a nightmare for our systems or for our people getting to that level of understanding takes some time and it takes some trust. Um, but it can happen in those types of environments, especially if you have a strong facilitator. Um, so as we start to wrap up today, um, for, for people who I, I want to sort of talk from like a, a career pivot perspective, if, if, if there are people who are in cybersecurity now doing pen testing or, or just security engineer or whatever other kind of thing who are intrigued by this, um, you know, and want to put their specific skill set to use within a, a, a larger emergency, either simulation or, you know, real time response plan, what are some things that they should uh, be adding on to their skill set, you know, in the mm-hmm. moment that would make, would, would, you know, that they might not think of, like, what, what should they be uh, sort of checking out, you know, in the evening while they're, you know, after dinner or whatever like that, or, yeah, yeah. or what, what are things that you need to see on a security person's resume to say that you, you have, you know, you, your skills will translate nicely to this, to this space. Yeah, you know, I think there's two ways, two ways of looking at it, right? I think, uh, especially in the in the technical space, there's a heavy focus on on skills and skill mm-hmm. building, right? And mm-hmm. and when you start getting into the softer side of things, there are soft skills, but I think there's more so soft attributes and and being able to to groom yourself and train yourself to show up in different ways or to uh, enhance your level of situational awareness, for example. Uh, there's a lot of transferable attributes and skills that mm-hmm. that will apply to those environment. So I think communications, number one, is is the most important thing. And that's not just, you know, do you understand communication systems and do you understand right. uh, radios and, uh, you know, SaaS systems, stuff like that, but, but to really be able to understand people and understand how they think, um, better understand their, their habits and things like that. You know, yep. why, why does the, the 50 something admin in your office uh, refuse to use a password manager, even though you know it will be easier on them, right? Yes. Uh, I, you know that and you believe that, but she doesn't believe you, mm-hmm. or maybe she does, but there's just something else in her way, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from, from making that change. 
you have to be able to empathize with that person and not just think about, you know, okay, I got to get this done because this was our objective was to get this whole office on the password manager by the end of the month. Um, it's to be able to really identify who that person is, what they're going through and, and be able to understand what communications methodology and, and approach is going to work best for them. Mm-hmm. That will serve you whether you decide to change careers or not, yeah. um, because you'll be able to communicate more effectively. You'll be able to work better on a team. Those types of things are are great. Um, I'm a I'm a Dale Carnegie trainer, and Dale Carnegie, uh, the the most famous book that he wrote is How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm-hmm. It's written you know almost a hundred years ago. Most of the stuff in that book still holds holds true today. People just want to be respected and they want to be heard. And yeah. uh, if you know how to do that, then then you will succeed. I think on a more on a more specific level, I think understanding the fields of like I mentioned, marketing and sales can mm-hmm. take that a step further, um, and that will actually take more training, you know, empathy is something that you can exercise and that you can modify in yourself and through practice and through, mm-hmm. um, just being aware you can grow that. Yeah. You know, I, I truly believe that anybody can, can become more empathetic and, and connect deeper with, with anybody else that they want to. Right. Um, and, and sort of a pra- practical version of that, I think would also just be the patience of like, cause I imagine you get really used to hearing, you know, Oh, I don't want to do the, I don't want to use a password manager. And like, you have to really be able to just and then like, and then explain yeah. again why it's going to make more sense. And, you know, so maybe if, if you can't do that, it might not be for you, but yeah. Yeah. And, and approach it as a challenge, I think too, right. Mm-hmm. I think the, the, the fun thing that I really enjoyed working and, and still enjoy working with, with IT type folks is that they approach issues with systems, vulnerabilities, whatever, as a challenge to be solved. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, you, you can do that in a negative way with people, right? Where you just kind of shove your idea down their throat. But I think there is a positive way too, where it's like, if, if we keep going with this admin assistant who's, who's refusing to use the password manager, well, I've tried this way. I've tried this other way. What if I try doing this other thing? Or maybe I don't want to, but maybe I show her, maybe I show her my password manager and how it's set up and how easy it is. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe I, maybe I bring in her neighbor who she respects and eats lunch with every day. Mm-hmm. And the neighbor has been using the password manager for a while and we both show her. And so you take more of a champion uh, communication yep. strategy with her, yep. but approaching it as a challenge to, to, to be solved and to appreciate the fact that you have something of value that she needs, whether she knows it or not, whether that whole office may know it or not, I think is the fun of, of communicating in this environment is because I know that everybody needs to hear the messaging that, that I have, or, or from my client's perspective, they need to be heard by their stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Um, but how is the best way to do that? And it's different every single time. I think that's really, really fun. And I lean on uh, the sales and the marketing uh, background that I have to do a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And that makes the messaging uh, even more fun because now I don't get to think about it just as a thing that I need to share with people. Like I'm pulling, you know, putting something on a bulletin board, but now how can I, how can I make this more approachable? How can I make this more engaging? And what would make these people want to take my information and use it and take action with it rather than just having that, you know, uh, glaze over them or wash over them as, as all the yeah. other messages that, that pass through their ears <laughs> do on a day-to-day basis. Totally. Uh, so as we wrap up today, Chris, can you tell us about Epicenter Innovation and some of the, you know, you've talked a little bit about some of the things you do, but what are sure. some of the big initiatives or projects you're, you're looking forward to working on and unveiling in, in the, the second half of 2022? 
Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking that. So, so Epicenter Innovation has been around since 2013. Um, we we have three main business areas. We do our emergency management services, which is a lot of pre-disaster training, coaching, and things like that. Uh, we also have our uh, disaster deployment team, which I told you about, Epicenter mm-hmm. Deployment Support Unit, which yep. operates after disasters. We also work on planned events for those types of things, too. So uh, we'll help make sure that the event is going to be safe and be uh, pre-positioned if there is any sort of incident. And then the third area, we actually work with private sector tech companies to help them uh, better refine and build solutions for the emergency management and resilience innovation space. Um, So we actually show them how they can take their existing solutions, make them applicable in the disaster management environment, uh, or at least help them with their messaging to help them show the value that they can bring to these people. Um, But frequently, we we are bringing people together that can learn from each other. And so we have engagement programming, we have uh, a coaching and consulting program that we're really excited about. We just launched this year um, that actually pairs a resilience innovator with a coach that will help them uh, enhance the level of resilience within their organization. And what's been fun with that is, you know, when we started the organization, we were by emergency managers for emergency managers. If there wasn't a life at stake, we usually weren't getting involved. And and more specifically, like 10,000 lives at stake is usually the threshold that we work at. Um, We work with lots of large organizations. But what we looked at was, was that there's so much more value to be shared at these organizations that work on the fringe of life mm. safety. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm talking like business continuity professionals, cybersecurity professionals are on the list for sure, school resource officers, and, and the, the types of people that have a, a reason and a, an imperative to build resilience and safety in their community, but they maybe not have the job title of emergency manager or disaster response coordinator or anything like that, but they, they are doing some of those jobs. And so we take emergency management professionals, uh, coach them and work them up uh, to, to become coaches uh, to show these individuals how they can use emergency management frameworks and disaster resilience building frameworks uh, to help improve their organization, make it ready for whatever uh, you know threats or hazards might impact them. Um, and we just kind of engage and empower them to do what they need to do. So we're sharing resources, coaching, consulting, and uh, it's all built around that idea of the resilience innovator and what that individual or set of individuals can do in the world. Hmm. All right. Well, one last question for all the marbles. If our listeners want to learn more about Christopher Tarantino or Epicenter Innovation, where should they go online? Yeah. uh, So you can visit our website. It's epicenter-innovation.com or you can uh, visit me on LinkedIn, LinkedIn Uh linkedin.com slash in slash Christopher Tarantino. More than happy to connect with anybody and talk about any of these things further. Uh, This has been a blast, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Christopher, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, As always, I'd like to thank everyone uh, listening to and supporting our show. New episodes of the Cyberwork podcast are available every Monday at 1 p.m. Central, both on video at our YouTube page and on audio, wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Uh, And as always, I want to make sure that you all know, and I think you do, that we have a lot more than weekly interviews about cybersecurity careers to offer. You can actually learn cybersecurity for free on our InfoSec Skills platform. Just go to infosecinstitute.com slash free and create an account. You can start learning right now. We have 10 free cybersecurity foundation courses, six leadership courses, 11 digital forensics courses, 11 incident response courses, uh, seven courses on security architecture, DevSecOps, Python, JavaScript, ICS, SCADA security fundamentals, and more. Just go to infosecinstitute.com slash free and start learning today. Thank you very much once again to Christopher Tarantino, and thank you all for watching and listening. We'll speak to you next week.
about some free cybersecurity training resources for you and your team. Just go to infosecinstitute.com slash free to get ebooks, training guides, and more than 100 cybersecurity training courses, all free for CyberWork listeners. Go to infosecinstitute.com slash free and start learning crucial new skills today.